Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up, Nets world? You know what it is the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. I'm going to be recapping a wild Nets weekend in which they picked up two very nice wins against two good teams, the first of which came Friday in overtime, 124-123 at Minnesota, and then obviously Sunday against the Western Conference-leading Nuggets. And there's a bunch of things that I want to touch on with both of these games because this caps off a stretch of the Nets have now won five of their last six after starting the new look era, one in six. So they're really starting to turn things around. I'm going to dive into all the reasons behind that. But just the first thing I want to highlight that I really think stuck out in these two games this weekend is this group's resiliency because this is a new group and it's something that I like to look for in a new team is do they have a front runner's mentality? How do they react when the chips are down? How do they react when things aren't going their way? And you look at some of the games they've been in during the six-game stretch. They came back from 28 points down against the Celtics in Boston on a Friday night in a really raucous environment. Then they nearly came back from a 20-point deficit in Milwaukee where they rested almost their entire rotation. They cut the lead to two with a minute left. And then in Minnesota, they're winning by double digits. The Timberwolves come back. They're up by three with a second remaining. Nas Reed obviously hits the prayer three to send it to overtime. At that point, a lot of people probably thought the Nets were dead. They they hang on in overtime. They win that game. And then they're down early in Denver. They get back up. They give the lead back again. And they're able to claw it out in the final minutes after blowing what was a 15-point fourth quarter lead. And this is against the Nuggets team that was 30-5 and five at home heading into this contest. And the Nets were playing them down the stretch and they had all the momentum and they were able to dig down, claw it out and get these W's. So, you know, would it be nice to see the Nets make better decisions and hold on to these leads and these last two wins? Yes, obviously. But I think that there's value in for a new group with a bunch of guys that are young, 26, a lot of these guys, Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, you know, the oldest guy who's really playing significantly, I guess, is Spencer Dinwiddie. He was 29 years old. You know, Seth Curry's more a background piece. So just a young group that's coming together and is able to overcome some adversity late in these games without getting down on themselves, just whilst keeping their minds on the goal at hand. So I thought that was really nice to see. The next thing I want to highlight is just a complete defensive turnaround during this five and one stretch that is pretty drastic and pretty glaring when you look at the numbers. In those first seven games in which the Nets were one and six with this new look team, they ranked 29th in defensive rating, 124.3. They were allowed allowing 121.4 points per game. In these last six games in which they're 5-1, and one, they have the best defensive rating in the league by a wide margin, 105.7. They're allowing 108 points per game. And two of those five wins, like I said, came against Denver and Boston away, which are the two second and fourth-ranked offenses in the NBA. They held the Celtics in the second half during that 28-point comeback to 16 of 37 shooting from the field. That's 43%. 2 of 12 from 3, 16%. They held the Nuggets in the second half Sunday to 51 points on 16 of 41 shooting. So really elite defensive showing. And there's a lot of different things that go into that. But something that I want to highlight is the Nets leaning into a small ball lineup in, you know, for a large part of the second half of both of those games in Denver, Nick Claxton picked up his third and fourth fouls with nine minutes left in the third quarter. And Brooklyn had to close the period with a small ball five of Dinwiddie, Bridges, Johnson and Harris split time at the three. 
um, Royce O'Neal and Dorian Finney-Smith. And that group closed on a 27-10 to 10 run while holding Denver to 2 of 13 shooting and forcing three, t- three turnovers. So that really proved to be the difference in this game. And I did a little bit of a film breakdown on Twitter and wrote an article that you guys can find on clutchpoints.com breaking down what the Nets did in that third quarter. And I thought it was really smart coaching. It was great execution. And it was great understanding of the game plan by all of those guys involved. And basically what they did was they doubled Jokic. They sw- First, they switched every ball screen or off ball screen, and they doubled Jokic and forced the ball to forced him to get the ball out of his hands and really dared some of Denver's supporting pieces to shoot. But while doing that, it's not like they were just surrendering completely wide open shots. They were stunting. They were rotating. They were shading. They were doing all the things necessary because they have five guys out there who were all similar archetypes, long, athletic, quick can do, you know, have the strength to bang with Jokic down low. So they were doing all these things that really just had Denver's offense completely discombobulated. I mean, the Denver play-by-play crew was saying like, oh my God, after some of these turnovers, because they just didn't know how Denver was going to solve what Brooklyn was doing. And I thought that the Nets did a really good job in particular being physical with Jokic, even though they're playing that smaller lineup and knowing how to kind of operate with him in that mid post. Because the thing that Jokic likes to do and Denver likes to do is he likes to kind of seal above, you know, a little bit higher towards the foul line. And in doing that, the Nuggets, they, you know, when other teams give up kind of that dump in pass to the foul line to Aaron Gordon, whoever it is, they like to work that high low action. And the Nets were able to shade from the right areas to take away that high low action while funneling the ball to the guys that they wanted to shoot, whether that be a Contavious Caldwell Pope, whether that be an Aaron Gordon, whether that be a Bruce Brown. I thought it was just a really, really solid exhibition of how to play team defense where everybody has to be in unison to take away an elite player and the best player in the league in Nikola Jokic. So that was extremely positive to see. And I think the Nets having that versatility of being able to play with an all NBA, all defense, defensive player of the year, uh, player candidate in Nick Claxton in the middle, while also being able to play with small ball lineups that have the capability to do those different things and switch up their looks. It's a major positive moving forward. I'm really excited to see how they continue this hot defensive stretch and really lean into the identity that we thought that they were going to have when they acquired Bridges, Johnson, Dinwiddie, Finney-Smith at the deadline, already having Royce O'Neal and some of these other guys. So really impressive, and I'm really excited to see what happens defensively there. Next, just want to touch on Mikhail Bridges, who, as a net, is completely breaking out and is approaching, you know, it's early to say star status, but he's flashing the potential to where the ceiling is being raised each game. He's averaging 25.7 points on 51-48-90 shooting splits. That's unbelievable. And he's really doing that in a variety of ways, which I'm going to get into. But Bridges has scored 30-plus in five of his last eight games. He did that twice in four and a half years with the Suns. So he stepped into this lead scoring, lead not lead ball handling, but lead scoring role. And he's really done an incredible job. And last game in Denver, he scored 25 on, I think, 9 of 16 or 17 shooting. And it felt like he had an off day. I mean, it felt like a floor game and a bad game for him. So when you're scoring 25 on 9 of 17 shooting and or 7 of maybe 7 of 16, something along those lines, what does that say when that feels like a bad day for you? I mean, that's what stars do in this league. They have games where... You know, they put up 25 points on 45% shooting and it feels like a bad game because that's their level of expectation. And we're approaching that with Mikhail Bridges. And I think that 
it says a lot about his ceiling moving forward. And speaking of his ceiling, McHale is a guy who can score from all three levels, but the way that he does that from all three levels varies a little bit in that he's shooting an extremely heavy amount from the mid range. I wrote about this last week and he's doing it at, you know, it's extremely efficient clip. I think he's like in the 85th percentile among wings right now with what he's converting at in the mid range. It's around 50%. He can get to the rim. He can shoot from three, but he's really only shot, shot from three off the catch predominantly. So that was something that I tweeted about a month ago when the Nets were, you know, I think they was right when they were at that one and six point. And I said, if Mikhail Bridges, you know, with what he's doing offensively right now, if he could add a three off the dribble and start taking pull-up threes, that would be really big for his ceiling and his development. And I looked at the stats, and in Phoenix, 56 games this year, he took 0.5 pull-up threes per game. He only took 30 in 56 games, and he shot 33.3%, 10 of 30 on those. Last season with Phoenix, in 82 games, he only took 29. So that's around 0.3 per game. He shot 31%. And that was a little bit more of the same as Bridges adjusted to this role in Brooklyn when I made that tweet through the first seven games here, he only took six pull-up threes and he was one for six. And I saw that, you know, he's scoring in an elite rate from the mid-range. He's getting to the basket somewhat. He can shoot off the catch. He's 23 of 46 on catch and shoot three is 50% with the Nets right now. But I said, if he can start taking those pull-up threes off the dribble, because that's the defender's you know, that's what they like to give him in order to take those other things away. If you have an elite scorer, there's one area of his game that you're willing to surrender. And with McHale early on, it was that pull-up three-point shot because they didn't want, he's got long strides and length. They didn't want to get beat to the basket. They don't want to let him get into that mid-range area where they've got, he's kind of got the defender moving and then he's able to elevate and stop on a dime and shoot that pull-up. So the natural inclination is to give up the pull-up three. And after I tweeted that, in seven games since, He's in six games since he's eight of 13, 61.5% from on pull-up threes. He's taking 2.2 per game. So that is just a massive development for Mikhail this early on in his role as this lead scorer with the Nets to be able to add that shot and increase his frequency there by four times while shooting at a 61.5% clip. I mean, it's going to obviously slow down and revert back to the law of averages, but the fact that he's recognizing that and he's willing to take those shots at a more advanced rate and he's hitting. I mean, this is a guy that I, I don't see why there's any reason now we've been talking about player comparisons. I think one that's been thrown around and by myself included has been a Chris Middleton type of, you know, a guy who's bigger, a two-way wing can score from any level on the floor is a really efficient jump shooter. I think that that is an extremely reasonable comp for Mikhail Bridges right now. And Chris Middleton is a guy who, while he's coming off an injury and he slowed down the season, he was the number two player on a championship team. And we saw what he did against the Nets in those 2021 playoffs. So if Mikhail Bridges can reach that level on a contract where he's making, what, 21 or $22 million over the next three seasons, it's going to turn out to be one of the best value contracts in the entire NBA. If the Nets can you know, find other pieces to put around him or, or him to be complimentary to, that is the makings of something really interesting. And the Nets obviously have all the draft capital to pursue those type of players in coming years. So what Mikhail's doing offensively is extremely exciting. And I would keep an eye on that pull-up three rate and the stats of what he's hitting at because it's a big sign, in my opinion, for his ceiling moving forward as a three-level scorer. Because if you're going to be a closer in this league, you got to be able to score from three levels. And the addition of that pull-up three to his game is bring him awfully close to a guy who can score from anywhere on the floor. 
Next thing I want to touch on is just Spencer Dinwiddie as the floor general with this Nets team. Because over his last seven games, Dinwiddie is sixth in the league at 9.3 assists per game and dished out a career-high 16 assists in the win over Denver Sunday. And then also, if we're going to talk about Dinwiddie, I think the most significant thing that you have to point out in these last two games is the fact that he's completely the closer for the Nets right now. Whether you agree with that or not, a different story that we'll get into. But Jock Vaughn is the trust Dinwiddie with the ball in his hands down the stretch of these games. And against Minnesota, he was outstanding. He struggled in the first half, and then he scored 17 points in the second half. And in overtime, they completely leaned into isolation with Dinwiddie, which I thought was a pretty good strategy in how they did it, because what they did was they identified Kyle Anderson, who's obviously aka slow-mo, not the guy with the quickest feet in the league defensively. And they tried to just have his man screen for Dinwiddie every time to start the possession in order to get that switch and get let Dinwiddie work on him in space. And Dinwiddie scored twice on the first two plays of overtime. And then after that, the defense started to collapse. He hit Mikhail Bridges and Dorian Finney-Smith on back-to-back plays for wide-open threes that put the Nets to tie the game and then put the Nets up three with about 30 seconds remaining. And that proved to be the difference. So Dinwiddie's ability to do that, I thought, was a really encouraging sign. And when you listen to Jock Vaughn talk about this, he wants the ball in a veteran's hand and a ball handler who's been there in those spots. And right now, that is Dinwiddie. Now, I will say they did the same thing against Denver. And Dinwiddie had a few possessions that were really bad going to the basket. And some people say he got fouled. He may have gotten fouled. But a point that I'd like to make is the Nets can't afford, and I think they should diversify those touches a little bit at the end of the game, given what I just said about Mikhail Bridges and his brilliance in scoring from all three levels. I think it would be smart to diversify that, lean a little bit more into Bridges. And I think the reason they haven't yet is because Bridges has to improve his playmaking a little bit. He's not on the level of Dinwiddie yet in terms of setting up his teammates, but the only way he's going to improve is by doing it more. And he's a guy that you want to be a star or turn into a star here. So giving him those touches will give Dinwiddie a little break. It will make the defense have to worry about someone else. And then I think you can also, whether Dinwiddie or Bridges is touching the ball, you can initiate those offensive sets with a little movement because ultimately it's going to, you know, down the stretch of games, teams aren't really running plays as much. It's more giving the ball to your best guy and letting him go to work. But you can initiate that in different ways, whether that's through a certain, you know, pin down a Chicago action, whether that's through like a UCLA cut or some kind of different screens. There's just different ways that you can initiate it to maybe get the defense out of position or to get those switches as the Nets kind of, kind of did with some high ball screens against Minnesota. But I think the takeaway from there is Dimwitty improving his playmaking as really the only guy on the team who can get downhill at the basket at a high level rate and find his teammates right now because Seth Curry's not doing it. Bridges isn't there. Cam Thomas isn't playing, something we're going to touch on later. But he's doing a good job right now, Spencer Dimwitty. And I think that these last seven games where he's sixth in the league in assists have been a good idea of what he can be if he put he's, if he's put in the position to collapse the defense and make the proper reads, which he's been doing. So nice to see from Spencer Dinwiddie. And then I just want to talk about the supporting cast because over these last two games, the supporting cast has been phenomenal. Headlined by Royce O'Neal. Over his last three games, Royce O'Neal's averaging 11.3 points, 10.7 rebounds, 3.0 assists, 1.7 steals, and he's shooting 8 of 16 from three. So just a completely awesome all-around effort from Royce O'Neal to grab 15 rebounds, the career high against Minnesota. And then in that second half, when I talked about that small ball lineup and that turnaround against Denver, 
Royce was one of the main guys who was all over the floor as a veteran, knowing completely how to position himself when shading to take away Jokic on some of those high-low actions, whether guarding Jokic on switches and scram switches and fronting him to not let the not let him get position. I think he did an unbelievable job with that and hit some big shots as well. Another guy who did an unbelievable job with fronting Jokic was Dorian Finney-Smith who's been just absolutely great in these last two games after struggling in a big way through the first 11 of his Nets tenure. He's 7 of 12 from 3 over these last two games. Like I said, hit a corner, go-ahead 3 in the final minute of overtime in Minnesota. Then he went 5 of 7 from 3 against Denver. And defensively, he's got 7 steals in those two games. He had a career-high 4 steals against Denver. And like O'Neal, like I said, did a great job on Nikola Jokic in taking him away and stunning and doubling and taking him away in the post on those fronts and coming up with a couple of steals, just a really nice performance from Dorian Finney-Smith and a guy who I think is showing that two-way versatility that you thought you were getting when you acquired him from Dallas. Next guy, Joe Harris, who obviously has had an up-and-down year coming off those two ankle surgeries last year and this offseason. He had an unbelievable stretch against Denver that was really, really, really important for the Nets to stay in that game or extend the lead because you knew that Denver was going to punch back because at the end of the third quarter, Denver had cut it to five with one minute remaining. And you know that the Nets don't always end quarters strong. And this was a sign where like the game could go two, one of two directions here. The Nets are either going to extend this lead or in this final minute, they're going to let Denver cut this to one possession. And then they're going to have a really hard time with Jokic coming back rested for the fourth quarter. And with Denver having that lead to five, Joe Harris knocks down a contested three late in the shot clock to push it to eight. Then on the other, the other side of the ball, the Nets have one of their great defensive possessions with that small ball unit. Joe Harris finishes it off with a man's rebound in the middle. And then Royce O'Neal hits another three on the other end to extend the lead to 11. So that went from five points to 11. And Joe Harris's two plays were a huge product of that, a huge reason for that. And then he hit two threes in the fourth quarter. So just a really high level performance from Joe Harris hitting three threes. He only played 13 minutes and there wasn't too much of a drop off defensively against that Denver offense, which has obviously been an issue in recent weeks for Joe, but just really nice to see him contributing in a big way. And then the last guy off the bench, Seth Curry, he's 14 of 25 shooting the ball on this road trip. He's 13 of 21. If you take out that weird Milwaukee game where everybody rested. He only played 11 minutes in that one. And he's just hitting the shots when you need him to. Does he make some poor decisions occasionally? Yes, but he hit some really timely shots when Minnesota and when Denver were trying to mount their comeback. So just a nice guy to have coming off the bench. And it's obviously playing over Cam Thomas, something that we are about to touch on, believe me, shortly. To end this episode, I wanted to take some questions from listeners as I did last time on my mailbag pod because people are really interested in the Nets amid this turnaround heading towards the playoffs. They're in fifth place ahead of the Knicks in terms of winning percentage right now. We've got 13 or 14 games left until the playoffs. Got two games against Cleveland who are two and a half games ahead of them, I think, for fourth place. So that's going to be really big. So just heading into some of these questions, what are the biggest reasons for the defensive turnaround we've seen since the second half of the Boston game? That's from Ryan Newman. I think overall, the Nets have been hit by some shooting variants early on when they were struggling in that stretch. And that's something that some guys have said. I asked Cam Johnson about it after the Knicks game at MSG, in which the Nets let up 142 points, which was the most ever allowed in the rivalry between the Nets and Knicks. And he just said, 
we've got to be better. I think guys are surprised by this, but some teams are just hitting shots and, you know, we need to just tighten up on these rotations, get more comfortable and it's going to come, you know, that shooting is going to even out. We're going to get better and be put in positions that we can make this things a little more difficult on some of these teams. And I think they've done that in a really nice way, just by being in tune with some of these rotations. And a big part of that is the Nets kind of switched up a little bit what they did in terms of their switching scheme. They're obviously a switch everything scheme. They played a little more drop with Nick Claxton and also Nerland's Noel over this recent stretch, just switching it one through four and then playing drop depending on the opponent um, in the middle. So I think that's been really good for them. And then, like I said, that small ball lineup has really done good things in that Boston game. Also in that Denver game, just the activity, the engagement Because one of the things that Cam said when I asked him about that said, we had, you know, Mikhail and I, we're in a defensive system in Phoenix where our principles were completely different from what we're doing here, sometimes opposite. Den, uh, Dinwiddie and Dorian Finney-Smith, same thing in with Dallas. So he said it's going to take some time. We can cut out that you know kind of half second or split second that we're hesitating on some of these defensive rotations because he said that he'd been second-guessing himself on a few that he thought that it was going to really show because of their overall length and athleticism with these groups. And I think that that has shown particularly in those small ball lineups, because we're talking about when we're talking about the starting unit for this Nets team, which is Dinwiddie, Bridges, Johnson, Finney, Smith, and Claxton. That group has an average height of six foot eight and an average wingspan of seven feet. So, and they're all athletic. Like they can all block shots. They can all guard in the perimeter. They can all move their feet. They can all get in passing lanes. So once you have these guys in unison in terms of defensive rotations, you knew it was only a matter of time before they started making things difficult and that shooting variance started slowing down. So I think that's a big part of it. And like I said, just just the high IQ nature of some of these guys, whether that's a Bridges, Johnson, I mean, the five that I said they had on the floor in that small ball lineup, it's Dimwitty, it's Bridges, it's Johnson or Harris, it's O'Neal, it's Finney Smith. So guys that are all high IQ players and have been around in this league for a little bit. And they just showed a great understanding, I thought, in that second half against Denver, against one of the smartest players, probably the smartest offensive player in the league in Nikola Jokic of how to slow him down and how to really understand the game plan that they were trying to what they were trying to do, what the overall goal was, which was to get the ball out of his hands, to funnel the, the shots to places where they wanted them to go. So they're really dictating what's happening. So in a long-winded explanation, that's what I attribute to the defensive turnaround. Next question, at what point do the Nets shut down Ben Simmons? I don't care what Jock Vaughn says. If you activate him, it could impact the team's rhythm. That's at Murray Boys. I'm not sure about Ben Simmons. We haven't gotten an update while on this road trip. I'd expect one on Thursday when the Nets return home, and I I'll, I plan to ask Jock Vaughn about it. Right now, I would say it's trending. I mean, Jock Vaughn, he's poured cold water on the shutdown, I think, four times now. He said, we do, we're not shutting down Ben. The quote he's used is, we've had zero conversations about it. Obviously, Simmons has missed every game since the All-Star break, initially with knee soreness, and then he said, he experienced, he has inflammation in his back after an MRI there. So it's not looking good. I mean, John Vaughn can say that as much as he wants, but it doesn't seem like there's an urgency. I mean, obviously I'm not privy to his medicals and I don't know the extent of his injuries, but it doesn't seem like with how the Nets are playing right now that there's an eagerness to throw him back into the rotation, especially given right before the All-Star break, he got bumped out of the starting lineup. He said, I have no idea what my role is with this team. And Jock Vaughn admitted after one of the games at MSG against the Knicks that it's going to be a challenge. We don't know really how we're going to integrate him some of these times. So 
given all that and given how this has played out, I wouldn't say that there's an urgency and I wouldn't be surprised if we get the news in the coming weeks that Ben Simmons is not coming back this season. Next question, how worried should we be at how they are handling Cam Thomas for the long haul? That's by at NJS Villain. I mean, I go back and forth on this topic because Cam Thomas is obviously a guy that flashed I don't know if you want to say star potential, but some kind of really high potential when he scored 40 plus points in three straight games last month, became the youngest player in the history of the NBA to do so alongside LeBron James. So there's obviously potential there, but the guys that the race for that backup ball handler spot right now is between him and Seth Curry, as I said earlier, and it would be nice to see Cam Thomas be able to get those minutes, given the fact that he's 21 years old. He obviously has a future in the NBA, whether it's with the Nets or another team. And there's potential there that, as compared to a guy in Seth Curry who's 32 years old and is on an inspiring contract, when the Nets just reset their timeline, it would make a lot more sense for one of those guys to be playing above the other. But the Nets have also said that they want to remain competitive. They want to try to advance in the playoffs. And right now, Seth Curry is giving the Nets a better chance to win with what the Nets want to do. And this next question, I'm going to get into that explanation. The next question is defensively, Cam has his downfalls, but so does Seth Curry. Why did Cam drop out of the rotation? That's from at DBoy0731. And the reason that I think Seth Curry is playing over Cam Thomas, I've gotten this question a gazillion times over this recent last 10 days or two weeks or whatever you want to call it. I would attribute that to, they're both not good defensively. Do I think Cam Thomas is a little better than Seth Curry? Maybe. I think Seth actually has a little bit better understanding of positioning sometimes and comes away with some steals on digs and other things that Cam Thomas just doesn't. But Cam's a little stockier. He can hold up against some other guys. It's splitting hairs. They're both not good defensively. The reason that I think Curry is playing over Cam is their shot charts. Because when you look at Cam Thomas, Jock Vaughn has been vocal that you know the Nets want to have a shot profile of taking a lot of threes and getting to the rim. They rank last in the league in rim pressure right now, something that Seth Curry doesn't do, but you know Cam Thomas isn't great at either. But they want to take 40-plus threes per game, and that's been an emphasis by Jock Vaughn. And when you look at Cam Thomas's shot chart, he takes only 26% of his shots from three, and he takes 54% of his shots from the mid-range. So those are shots that... Jock Vaughn really doesn't want to lean heavily into where they already have a guy in the rotation in Mikhail Bridges who's shooting over half of his shots from the mid-range, and he's their top scorer right now. So not only is Cam Thomas taking 54% of his shots from that area, he's only shooting 40% on those attempts. So he's taking a lot of shots in the area that Jock Vaughn doesn't want to take shots in, and he's not efficient on them right now, as compared to Seth Curry, who takes 51% of his shots from three and is just a much better three-point shooter, historically one of the best in the league. And then he takes 40% of his shots from the mid-range compared to 54% for Cam. And when he is taking those mid-range shots, he's shooting 51% from there as compared to 40% for Cam. So To sum it up, if those numbers have your head spinning in circles, overall, Seth Curry is just shooting the ball better and he's taking more of the shots that Jock Vaughn wants and less of the shots that he doesn't want. So that's the reason that Seth Curry's playing over Cam Thomas because he's doing more of what the Nets want to do and he's doing it at a more efficient rate. And then on top of that, 
Jack Vaughn with Dinwiddie and talking about some of the ball handling. He's been vocal about the value that he puts on having veteran guys who can handle the ball at some points in games and just having that presence on there. Do I think that's a little bit of a weird argument to make for Seth Curry, who makes some pretty bad decisions at points down the stretch of games these last couple of games? Yes, but overall, he is a veteran as compared to a guy like Cam Thomas, who is really limited in his understanding of the game. So I understand why the Nets are playing Seth Curry over Cam Thomas. In a perfect world, would it be nice to play Cam Thomas more and lean in his development? Yes, and I think the Nets should. But ultimately, if they want to do that, the coaching staff has to get through to Cam about how they want him to play and leaning into the style that they want to. And it's just not something that he's as comfortable doing as a guy like Seth Curry because... He's accustomed to a very high usage, accustomed to shooting from the mid-range, not accustomed to a ton of catch-and-shoot looks. So right now, they're just more comfortable with Seth Curry. And I can see the reasoning behind that by the numbers. It's an unfortunate reality. But if they're trying to be competitive in the playoffs, they just think that Seth Curry gives them a better chance. Next question, do you think Nerlens Noel gets a contract for the rest of the year? That's from at Matthew Magnani. And... I would say I think so. Nerlens is obviously on a 10-day contract. It's going to be expiring on Wednesday, so he's going to play one more game before it expires. His minutes against Denver were pretty rough. He was not good against Nikola Jokic. He didn't play against Minnesota at all. He was average at best in his first two games against Houston and Milwaukee. But at the same time, I don't think that the Nets are going to do better. And ultimately, I think that they're going to lean more into those small ball lineups. I think that Noel, if anything, is more just depth. He's a change of pace guy. Can I see him playing in a playoff series? Maybe very limited minutes, dependent heavily on matchup. But I don't really see the sense in cutting him loose in the fact that they're not going to find a, a better backup center option. And God forbid Nick Claxton is to go down with an injury. They at least need a body to put in there. And they need a body to be able to throw in games if teams have a bigger backup center that maybe they need to counter to. So I do think that he's going to get a contract for the rest of the year. Do I think that he's going to play a huge role for this team heading towards the playoffs? No, but I do think that there's value in having another center a traditional center behind Nick Claxton, who you can just kind of have as an emergency guy. Next question, if they keep Nerlens Noel, is he playoff eligible? That's from at Sean Leventhal. Yes, he is playoff eligible. He's He got bought out before the um, before the required date. So whichever team he signed with, he was going to be playoff eligible for. So if the Nets want to play him, they will be able to. Last question, what do you see the Nets getting in return for a potential trade of Dinwiddie, Dorian Finney-Smith, or Cam Thomas. That's from Matt Kaysan, 0420. I, I think the expectation, if they were to move on from any of those guys in the offseason, would be that hopefully each of them could fetch a first-round pick, theoretically. There were rumors that teams had offered, a team had offered two first-round picks for Dorian Finney-Smith that the Nets turned down. We don't know if those were heavily protected, You know what the stipulations on with them, which is obviously important. But I think if they were to move on from any of those guys, I think that minimum, you would, you would hope to get a first-round pick for any of them. And I think that it's plausible that the Nets are going to try to move on from some of these guys because they have a lot of wings right now. And they have a lot of guys that are on good value contracts, whether it be a Dinwiddie, a Finney Smith, a Royce O'Neal, you know, Cam Thomas obviously showed his potential and is not in the rotation right now. So I, I could see them trying to consolidate, but they're playing well right now. And you know, I really don't want to talk about trading these guys when they're playing so well. But you know, to answer your question, theoretically, if they were to, which is plausible, I'd expect them to be looking obviously for draft equity and to maybe move up in a draft or for future draft picks, a la first round picks. 
That's all the questions that I have time to answer. I hope that you guys enjoyed this pod. I'm Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for clutchpoints.com here on the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. The Nets are going to wrap up a five-game home uh, road trip in Oklahoma City on Tuesday, and then they're going to return home for a four-game homestand. So really excited to continue coverage on all that. You can find my articles, news updates, analysis on clutchpoints.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Slater underscore for injury updates, lineup updates, game threads, live game tweets, all of it. Appreciate you guys for listening. Hopefully the Nets can continue this hot stretch and I'll have more coverage soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.